Thank you, Dave. Good morning. My name is Jared Lawson. I'm the pastoral resident, as Zach said, as he was objectifying my appearance. Uh, you can call me the pastoral resident. You could flip that around if you like. Call me the resident pastor. Wouldn't be accurate, but it you know, gives me this false sense of authority. So you can do that if you want. Like Dave just read, we'll be in Psalm 103 this morning. So one of the things that you probably noticed if you've been coming to Parkway for a while is that we like to spend this time preaching the Bible, right? You're not going to see many 10-step, you know, sermon series to a greater life or to better happiness or whatever. You're just going to hear 1 John or Psalms or things like that. And so one of the things that you'll pick up is that there are some passages that are a bit more impactful that seem to just captivate you uh, more than others. But that doesn't mean they're any more a part of the Bible, Okay, if we did a sermon series on Leviticus, you'd be very aware of that. You'd be like, give me Romans again, please, First John. Anything to get out of Leviticus, right, to those more impactful sermons. It's similar to if you've traveled, you'll notice there are some places that are more beautiful than others. Basically, you just have to leave Texas, and then you're like, wow, more beautiful places exist. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're any more a part of planet Earth. So you have the straightforward type of meat and potatoes type text, you know, love your neighbor, watch out for sin, stuff like that. And then you have some passages that seem to take you to the mountaintop. And you just see beauty everywhere you look. And today we're gonna look at, in my opinion, one of those passages, this is my favorite Psalm. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, says this about Psalm 103. As in the lofty Alps, some peaks rise above all others. So among the inspired Psalms, there are heights of song which atop all the rest. This 103rd Psalm has ever seemed to be the Mount Rosa, the highest peak in the Swiss Alps, the Mount Rosa of the divine chains of praise, glowing with a brighter light than any other rest. So we're gonna go to the mountaintop this morning and what we're gonna observe is King David, this man after God's own heart, go before the Lord to pray. And as we watch him, he's going to teach us, this psalm is going to teach us something that's incredibly crucial for you if you're a Christian, something that's absolutely central to your walk with the Lord, to your sanctification, to what it means to be a Christian, and that is biblical meditation. Not Easter meditation, what we typically think of when we think meditation, but biblical meditation. So let me pray, and then we will dive in. Father, we love you. Uh, We live in a time where there are uh, so many voices yelling at us, whether on social media or in our own family or whatever it might be. There's so many uh, claims to truth and there's actually attack on what truth is. And so there's a temptation for us, Lord, to simply just grab on to truth in a hopeless way and just hope we'd ride out the storm. But rather, I want uh, you to teach us, teach our hearts this morning that your truth is beautiful that your, heart, uh, your truth is transforming, that you've given us in your word guidance through any difficult time because of your son, because your son has come and transformed our hearts and give us a hope that nothing can ever thwart. So I pray that your word would speak to our hearts this morning in your son's holy name, amen. Okay, first we see that title of David. We've talked about how you, know, you have the English titles and then you have actual Bible-inspired titles. You see that there of David. So David's the author here and then we see verse one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So this first verse is actually gonna set set the scene for us, set the stage of what's happening. What's most likely happening here is David is going before the Lord to pray and he feels far from God. He feels spiritually low, spiritually dry, as some of us say. He gives that great call to praise. Bless the Lord, but who's he calling? Who is he telling to praise God? Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
Right? You see the psalmist talk to their soul sometimes. You see Psalm 42, maybe the most famous. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, right? Look up, praise God. So similarly here, David is saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. So he's feeling low. And again, remember who this is. This is King David. This is the man after God's own heart who when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem, he dances before it so mightily, right? What happens when he got home later that night? His wife says, you embarrassed me. Don't ever do that again right? King David, who's written more Psalms than anybody else. King David, that when the whole Israelite army was terrified to go fight Goliath, what does he say? The Lord will be with me. That King David is going to pray and he says, God feels far from me. My emotions aren't lining up with the truth that I know about God. So that's the situation. Here's the key question. What is David going to do about it? What is he going to do about it? Is he going to, like us, say, yeah, I didn't get a great night's sleep. Maybe I'll, I'll pray tomorrow. You know, my feelings might be a bit more in tune after a, a good night's sleep. Does he reason his way out of it? You know, God's sovereign anyway. Is it really that important? Is he not going to do something that he was going to do anyway if I don't pray? Is it really that key that I pray? Is he going to let his feelings guide what he does? No. We'll see. In fact, he's going to, rather than listening to his own heart, take the truth that he knows about God all that is within me, he says. He grabs a hold of it with all his might and he's actually gonna preach to his heart instead of listening to his heart. And he's gonna meditate on three main things, God's salvation, God's character, and God's compassion. And as he does, as he tries to set his heart on fire with this biblical meditation, we're actually gonna get to see the results of this by the end of the psalm, which is something truly incredible. But he's complacent. What's the first thing he meditates on? God's salvation, verse two. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. In verse two, that word for forget not is really important to see uh, what David is doing here. It carries this sense of meditation. It's this idea of hold this truth in your mind and don't let go. Don't let this well run dry. Notice the translators don't translate this word remember. Remember has God's salvation kind of on the side. You're just going about your day and then, oh yeah, I'm in a tough spot. Let's remember God's salvation. Let's call it here. But rather what David is saying is I want your salvation to be the core narrative of my life. I want it to be constantly on my mind. I never want to forget this. I never want this to go away and have to call it back. I want this to be the core narrative of who I am. You see something similarly similarly in the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, what does he say? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His salvation is what is central to who I am. There's no me anymore. Paul has been crucified with Christ and now Christ lives in me. And so similarly here, David is saying, I want your salvation to be an all-consuming reality, so much so I never cease to meditate on it. So where does he start? Forgiveness. You are the one who forgives all my iniquity. Why does he start with forgiveness? Because there's a massive chasm between a holy God and sinful man. There's a massive gap. There's a massive barrier because of sin. And if you don't do something about that, that gap, nothing else on this list is gonna matter. Healing is temporary. Redemption can never uh, actually lead to reconciliation and satisfaction is gonna be short-lived. And so what's the first thing he says? You forgive my iniquity. That gap that separates us, you forgive my iniquity. But it doesn't stop there. He says, you are the one who heals all my diseases. You are the one who redeems my life 
from the pit. You redeem me from death. Again, King David is often on death's door. He's saying, death was so close to me, it was as if it had its hands wrapped around me, yet you redeemed me. Right, again, think about David's life. He's a shepherd boy that's fighting off lions and bears. Right, Goliath terrifies an entire army, not David. Even his own family tries to kill him. Right, King Saul, his father-in-law, is having a rough time, so David goes to play the harp to ease his spirits, and what does Saul do? Throws a spear at him, right? So even David was bullied for being a band nerd. I don't know why Carl's so upset every time we make jokes. King David was even bullied for being a band nerd, right? His father-in-law hunts him through the wilderness. He's having to hide in caves. He's constantly on death's door, and yet he says, you redeem me. You've redeemed me from death. Do you see what he's doing here? This is biblical meditation, taking truth about God and preaching it to your own heart, letting it transform your heart to worship God. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, retired now, uh, more famous as a Christian author, says this about biblical meditation. Biblical meditation, unlike the popular varieties, is not a relaxation technique for emptying the mind, but rather one that fills it with truth, using thought and memory to set your heart on fire. That's exactly what David is doing here. You're the one that forgives me, heals me, and redeems me. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop just at what God has saved him from. He also looks at what God has saved him to. Right? If you, if you just stop with what God has saved you from, right? I had iniquity, you forgave it. You're kind of just back to square one. But David doesn't do that. He moves on. He says, you didn't just save me from death. You filled me with life. There's these things that you've saved me to. You crown me, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with your steadfast love and your mercy. You satisfy me. So I, I feel like a young man again, right? My, the old anxieties from my old age are wearing off and I just feel like I can soar like the eagles. You ever seen an eagle fly? It just seems to be stuck there in the sky, restful, just gliding. There's not hard work there. It's just soaring like it's the king of the sky. God, after God's satisfaction, you're full. There's no reason to go search from anywhere else, right? It's perfectly found in him. Again, biblical meditation. Grabbing hold of these truths about God's salvation and preaching them to his heart instead of listening to his heart. He's preaching to it. So here's the question. This is a sermon after all. I have to say something to you. Do you pray like this? Do you tell your heart, forget not, or you just say, Remember? Right? Is what Jesus has done for you in the gospel the core narrative of your life or is it just something on the side, something you remember whenever you're in a tight spot? Because the reality is if you're a Christian, right, everything David is praying is absolutely true of you because of what Jesus has done in the gospel. He has forgiven all your iniquity. Why? By taking them upon himself. He has eternally healed you. How? By killing death defeating death itself so that you can share in the glorious resurrection that you will one day receive a glorified body, every tear wiped away, no more pain, no more suffering for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. That is what he's bought for you in the gospel. But here's typically the problem when we go to pray. When we go to pray, we have this weird false idea of God that he's just this kind of divine angry taskmaster who just focused on how we serve him. And so what we'll do is we'll focus on our own works whether or not we've been performing for God. And when you focus on your own works, one of two things will happen. Jeff mentions this often. Either you'll be filled with shame because you haven't been praying enough in the first place, right? You haven't been working good enough. Or you'll be filled with pride. You have been uh, praying enough to begin with. Surely God must be uh, pleased with you. But what's the problem with that? Neither of those are ever gonna be able to set your heart on fire to truly worship God. Do you see how radically different David's prayer is? 
Rather than focusing on how good he has been for God, he focuses on how good God has been to him. Right? There's nothing in David that would ever inspire worship. He's the one with the iniquity. He's the one with the diseases. He's the one wallowing in the pit. Rather, it's what God has done for him in spite of his best efforts that is setting his heart on fire to worship. David knows that if you focus on your own works, you're only gonna go down those two roads. And if you continue down the shame road, your heart's just gonna grow more and more dull and dry because all you're gonna see is your own failure. But if you continue down the pride road, your heart's gonna grow more and more bitter. You're gonna become self-righteous and suddenly it's gonna be God's fault for not blessing you when you've been so good to him, right? But if you realize that all you've contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary, as Jonathan Edwards says, then you'll truly be free to worship. Your heart actually can be set on fire to worship the one who has saved you, not yourself, him. The one who has forgiven you, the one who has healed you and crowned you and satisfies you. So that's the first thing David does. You are the one who saved me. He meditates on God's salvation. What is he gonna do next? It's his first attempt to try and stir his heart towards worship, looking at God's salvation. Next, he's gonna do what's only natural. When you see uh, an incredible act, like this one, the act of God's salvation, there's this natural impulse to want to know the person, the person who does those great acts. So uh, imagine, I mean, you have a hero. Not, imagine a hero that's not your dad or somebody, someone you don't know, a sports hero, whatever, an astronaut, I don't know. Uh, I guarantee you once in your life, you've said something like, I'd give anything to have dinner with them. Right? There's this idea of you've seen them do all this incredible things and now you want to know the person, you want to know their character. You probably waited in a really long line to get a hat signed with their name and said, hi, I've, I love you. And you just say something awkward and they say, thank you. And then you move on, right? There's this natural impulse to know the person when you've seen them do this incredible things. And here David is seeing God's salvation and now he moves on to God's character, the God who does such a great salvation. And he's gonna highlight two things for us. What's the first? Verse six. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The first thing he's gonna highlight about God's character is God is a God who identifies with the lowly. God is a God who identifies with the lowly. He says this about himself all the time, Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice to the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Proverbs 14, 31, listen to this. Whoever oppresses the poor insults his maker. And to really catch the impact of this, you have to see how radically unique this is in David's day. In the ancient Near East, in David's day, the gods identify with the kings. They couldn't care less about the lowly. They're busy making the powerful powerful. It was just assumed the king is the king because the God showed favor upon them, right? They couldn't care less about injustice being done to an orphan or something like that. But you, look what Yahweh says about himself, how drastically different. Psalm 68, sing to the Lord, sing praises to his name, a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. The God of the Bible shows no partiality. He can't be bought off by the high class. There's no oppression that he misses. He, in fact, he gives justice to those who are poor, those who are oppressed. There's no one who goes unseen by him. There's no depths you could ever go where God doesn't see you. There's this incredible story in Genesis 16. God comes to Abraham, promises him a descendant in his old age, and then Sarah, his wife, says, I'm a bit too old for this. Surely God didn't mean through me. Take my servant girl, Hagar, 
Maybe the descendants will come through her. And so Hagar, a servant girl, is forced to sleep with uh, Abraham. She does. She becomes pregnant. What happens after that? Sarah becomes angry and has Abraham send her away into the wilderness, almost certainly to die. So you have a servant girl forced to sleep with her master, mistreated, sent away in the wilderness, almost certainly to die. And what happens? The angel of the Lord shows up to her says, the Lord has seen you. Don't worry, he's gonna make a great nation through the baby in your womb. And what does she say? Surely you are a God who sees. There's no depths you could go. He doesn't see you, right? This is God's character. This is what David is exalting. And just to give a quick warning, you have to do this because of our culture. Anytime you mention oppressed, Jeff talked a lot about this this morning. Anytime you mention oppressed in our culture, you have to really define it biblically. Similarly, if you mention love, you know, love in our culture is tolerance. But what's love biblically? Intolerance. Follow Jesus alone for your salvation. You follow all the other billions and billions of people that have existed, there's no salvation there. That's incredibly intolerant, right? And so you have to define love biblically because our culture sees our postmodern world has a worldview that says there are those who are in power, the majority who are in power, and those who are the minority who are not in power, and the people in power by the very nature of them being in power are oppressors and those who are not in power by the very nature that they are in the minority are oppressed, right? So you see, you know, this is a male-dominated society that oppresses women, you know, a cisgendered heterosexual society that oppresses the LGBTQ uh, communities, a Christian majority that oppresses Muslims, right? If you say Jesus is the only way, that's Islamophobic, things like that. A white supremacist society that oppresses people of color again. And so there's a danger of just inserting God into that paradigm. By the way, by that definition, God, who has more power than anybody, would be the most oppressive being in the history of the universe. So be careful before you drink in your definitions from the world because not only is the world, our culture, have a very different definition of what it means to be oppressed, it also has a very different way of dealing with the oppressed. What do you hear if there's been an abuse victim? What's the way to their healing that they're often told? You need to take the power back. You need to take the power back. Why doesn't that work? Well, first of all, you're taking the power back. Now you're the one that gets to take revenge, right? You've become like your oppressor. You get to deal out the pain now. Secondly, you're never going to be healed because the burden is still on you. You're still imprisoned by bitterness. You're still imprisoned by hatred. You're never going to be healed that way. What does the Bible say? If you've been oppressed, if you've been abused, you need to realize God has all the power. And he is infinitely good and infinitely trustworthy and perfect. He's the only one who will perfectly deal out justice to your oppressor. And he's the only one who can perfectly heal you. And now when you see that God has all the power and he's infinitely good, you can experience the freedom of forgiveness. Why? Because the burden's not yours to carry anymore. It's his. He's carrying it. So you need to be careful before you just drink in the world's definition because there's a lot who are. So David's lifting this up. God is a God of the lowly. He's telling his heart, look at this incredible God who sees. There's no oppression that you miss. There's no injustice that you don't remedy. Surely you're the God who sees. That's the first thing he lifts up. What's the second thing? What's the second thing? Verse seven. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And then we see this description. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. He won't always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. So you see that, he made known his ways to Moses. Okay, what does that have to do with God's character? That seems just like a random historical fact. What David is doing here is he's highlighting uh, one of the most incredible events in Israel's history. You remember most people's, you know, one of the first Bible stories they learned, the golden calf. 
God rescues uh, a nation of slaves out of captivity, stops them at Mount Sinai, says, I want to enter into covenant with you. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. He marries them in a very real sense. And what happens? On their wedding night, Israel commits adultery. And they make the golden calf and they worship it. Behold your God that brought you out of Egypt. And so they stand condemned and Moses has to pray. He has to intercede. And so uh, God forgives them because of Moses' prayer. And Moses, like David in this psalm, sees this incredible forgiveness and he wants to know the God who extends such forgiveness, who can forgive such rebellious people. So what does he say? Show me your glory. I wanna know your character. I wanna know who you are. Show me your glory. I wanna see your face. And so God says, Okay, no one can see my face and live, but here's what I'll do. I'll pass before you and declare my name to you. And so uh, we have this passage in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means cleanse the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He declares his name, he declares his character. And do you remember what happens next? Moses is so transformed by this encounter with God's character that his face is literally shining. He has to put a veil over it anytime he goes and addresses Israel. And so David, wanting to talk about God's character, highlights this. He made known his ways to Moses. So how does this stir our heart towards worship? Two ways. The first way is maybe so simple that you missed it. God is a God who reveals himself to man. You ever thought about that? God is a God who reveals himself to man. Again, in the ancient Near East, this is so radically different you know, than the, all the other gods of the world. If you wanted to know the other so-called gods, if you wanted to know Baal's will or whatever, you know what you had to do? You had to read the tea leaves. You had to find a sheep and kill it and cut it open and pull out its liver and have a priest or a diviner read the liver. How big is it? What color? Whatever. That's how you knew the God's will. You're kind of looking in the crystal ball. And before you mock that, let me ask you this. Have you ever had a big decision in your life and you say, oh, I just wish God would send me a sign. If he really sent me a sign, I, I knew what was going on. What are you doing there? You're reading the tea leaves. Right? You think God has this secret hidden will for your life and you better figure it out or else he's gonna be very upset with you. And David is saying, no, no, you're fundamentally misunderstanding a piece of God's character if you think about him in that way. Yahweh, our God, is a God who makes himself known. You don't serve an abstract God, rather you serve a living God, right? Who you have an actual living relationship with, why? Because he's revealed himself to you. We don't have this abstract idea of God, rather a fundamental element of his character is that he makes himself known. And so David is lifting this up to try and stir worship in his own heart, but he doesn't just stop there. He says, uh, he's revealed himself to us, but then he says, look what he reveals. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Look at the character that he reveals. You know, theoretically, God could have come down and revealed that he was a tyrant. He could have said, I love chaos, I love injustice, and I love sin, and you better start sacrificing your children to me or I'm not gonna make your crops grow. That's what Baal does. You better start getting some child sacrifices going or you're not gonna have any crops or favor in battle. He could have revealed that he's a tyrant, but look what he reveals instead. He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. Have you ever been around a quick-tempered person? Even when they're not currently mad, you're always stressed around them because you never know when they're gonna snap and fly off the handle. God says, I'm not like that, I'm slow to anger. 
He's abounding in steadfast love. This word for steadfast love is the word hesed. It's God's covenant love. It's this love that's infused with faithfulness, with loyalty. He's abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He won't always rebuke, nor will he keep his anger forever. Even in his judgments, there's mercy. There's limits to his anger. So David is lifting this up, saying, what an incredible character this is. He's saying to his heart, look to your God and say, I know who you are. You're the God who reveals yourself, not just to the lowly, but to lowly rebels. You have a character abounding in steadfast love that's gracious and merciful. It's not just what you've done, it's who you are that stirs my heart to worship. Notice that. Notice that David isn't just stopping at God's salvation. He's not just stopping at what God's done for him. Right, if you just stop there, he's just, you know, your divine butler or something. He's only useful when he's bringing you stuff. But David keeps going to the living God that he's in covenant with. He exalts who God is. So again, here's the question, do you do that? One of the most fundamental questions you're gonna have to answer in your Christian walk that's gonna mark everything that you do is, is God a means to another end? Is he a means to another end? Or is he the ultimate end himself? When you first turned your life to Jesus, was it because you know, he'd get you out of hell and get you a sweet mansion in heaven or because you wanted a living relationship with the Prince of Peace? Because if you don't see that, if you don't see God as the ultimate end of all ends, fellowship with the living God as the goal of why you're a Christian, then one, you actually have misunderstood the gospel. Two, you haven't bought into the gospel, you bought into the religion of moralism. What's moralism? It's all about transactions with God. I'll do these things for you if you bless me, right? And when that doesn't happen, when God doesn't come through, either your faith is gonna crumble because it wasn't built on anything in the first place or you're just gonna become more and more angry and bitter with God. Why? Because he's not holding up his end of the deal. But again, if you realize that the goal of Christianity, that the end of all ends is God himself, fellowship with the living God, what does Jesus say? This is eternal life, that they may know you the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, then you'll truly be able to worship. Your heart will be able to worship in any circumstances, no matter how stressful, because you'll already have what you were after in the first place, him. You already have who you were after in the first place, rather. You'll truly be able to worship in any circumstance. That's what David is doing here. He moves beyond what God has done for him. He says, praise you for what you've done for me and praise you for who you are. You're the God of the lowly. You're the God who comes down and reveals himself, reveals this unbelievable character filled with mercy and steadfast love. That's what he meditates on next, his character. What's next? The question that remains after you see this incredible character is this, how does a God of such an an unbelievable character, an amazing character, how does he deal with his sinful people that are constantly rebelling against him? How does that character spill out into uh, a creation that's, re- that's, that's filled with rebels. Shouldn't those things contrast? What does David find when he looks at it? He finds that God, a God of that character, is compassionate. It's compassionate. Look at verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What does it look like for a God of that character when he sees his sinful people? He doesn't give them what they deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. There's an Old Testament commentator named Leslie Allen who translates verse 10, who's trying to capture kind of the sense of what this verse means, and she translates it this way. He has not treated us, listen to this, he has not treated us in proportion to our sins, nor has he dealt with us as our iniquities deserve. 
And again, here we see the fatal flaw of moralism. In moralism, you're saying, God, look what I've done, now, now give me my blessing, where's my blessing? You know, I've saved myself for marriage, where's my perfect spouse? You know, where's my problem-free marriage? I've given to your church, I've given to missions, where's my financial freedom? Right, where's my blessing? You're saying to God, whether you admit it or not, you're saying, you owe me. And David here is saying, you're right, he does owe you, you're just wrong about what he owes you. Because if you sin before holy God even once, and the Bible tells us that we're actually born in sin, he only owes you one thing, his eternal wrath. That's what he owes you. So you're saying to God, look at what I've done, now give me what I deserve, and David is saying he has looked at what you've done, and praise God, he doesn't give you what you deserve. Right, that's the core of the gospel. He doesn't give us what our sins deserve. One sin before an infinitely holy God, if God is infinitely holy that way, then one sin against him is infinitely worthy of punishment that way, right? To give an unhelpful hand gesture analogy, right? That's what we deserve. But what does the gospel say? Praise Jesus Christ because he says, I'll take what you deserve so that you don't have to, right? That wrath that's standing over you, that wrathful cup that's meant to be poured out over you for your sins, I'll drink all of it. And there's nothing left for you. Everything that's meant to come at you this way, all the wrath that's coming this way, Jesus says, it's gonna come this way and there's nothing left, There's nothing left to be poured out on you. That's the gospel. We don't get what we deserve. And David's gonna actually take it one step further. He's gonna say, not only do we not get the wrathful punishment our sins deserve, but instead God actually removes our iniquities from us. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Instead of giving us the wrathful punishment our sin deserves, what does he give us? A love that cannot be measured. Instead of giving us the wrathful, eternal punishment our sins deserve, he gives us a love that cannot be measured. Parents should recognize this imagery, by the way. What do you say to your children, uh, little kids, I would assume, as you're trying to uh, describe this love that's just exploding in your heart? At least my mom said something to me like this. I love you to the moon and back. And then it was to Pluto and back. And then it was back to the moon and back after they took Pluto away from us, right? What are you saying there? Are you saying I love you 400,000 miles worth or however far it is to the moon and back? No, you're saying my love for you is infinite. And similarly, David here is saying, look up and tell me when you reach the end of the heavens. That's how great his steadfast love is for you. Look east and tell me when it meets the west. That's how far he's removed your transgressions. A word meaning your crimes against him. That's how far he's removed your transgressions from us. This idea that they're always getting further and further and further apart. His compassion for you is like a father to his children. Tim Keller, again, in his, his book on the Psalms, comments on this verse and says, parents know their children's besetting sins, yet a good father loves his children anyway. Indeed, the more weak and the more needy a child is, the more his father's heart goes out to him. So God loves us to the bottom, yet nevertheless, or knows us to the bottom, yet nevertheless loves us to the skies, literally. His compassion to us is like a father's to his children. And as if that wasn't already on total display in this psalm, David's gonna go a step further and show us in these next verses the nature of our lives apart from God. What our lives look like apart from God and he's gonna say it's characterized by three things. You're made of dust, your life is unbelievably fragile and when you're gone, no one remembers. Verse 14 is real encouraging. 
For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. You're made of dust. We see this in the first three chapters of Genesis, right? God forms Adam from the dust to dust he returns. Your life is so fragile, a simple breeze uproots you, right? This isn't a mighty tree with deep roots that a storm, a tornado has to rip out of the ground. It's just a little gust of wind. That's how fragile your life is. And perhaps the most terrifying to us, when you're gone, no one remembers you. I did a couple years ago, I think I mentioned this before, I did a family tree. It's not a big deal. It's what you do when you're cool. I did a family tree so that my fam- it was our Christmas present. Everyone in my family loves me. Uh, and I felt bad for my great-grandparents, just a couple generations removed, uh, and I knew nothing about them. You know, this, my great-grandpa who lived to his 80s, you know, probably had all these hopes and dreams and worked real hard and sacrificed. And then a couple generations later, some great-grandkids like, okay, summarizes his whole life. Moved to Texas, was a banker, period, right? How cheap. <laughs> but the reality of your life is your kids will remember a small fraction of all that you've worked for, your grandkids even less, and your great-grandkids will struggle to remember your name. Even if you become president, right, the most famous person in the country or the world, how many people can name all 45 presidents? Just curious. I memorized a song in fourth grade, so I can. Again, not a big deal. (laughs) Tell me something about Martin Van Buren. Anybody? He's dead, okay. (laughs) William Taft, uh, one time uh, they had to ship in an extra large bathtub into the White House because he was so fat he got stuck in the old one. And that's all I know about William Taft, okay? So even if you become president, you're gonna be forgotten, right? Depressing. And it should be if that's what you're ultimately living for. But look what David points to in the next verse. Man is like grass, but, verse 17, here's the great contrast, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. If you're living as the center of your own life, if you're living for your own kingdom, that's only gonna lead to depression. But God says, if you live for me, if you live with me as the center of your life, if you live for me and my kingdom, not only do you get to join the eternal kingdom of all kingdoms, but you actually get to know the king of kings and you'll find the fulfillment of every desire that you've ever had in him. St. Augustine, writing one of the most famous books in the history of the church, his confessions, comments on this, what it looks like when we try and find meaning apart from God. And he says this, what does ambition seek except honor and glory? But only you, Lord, have a glory forever that can never be lost. What does the power of the mighty desire except to be feared? But none has power that can never be seized or stolen but you. What does the lonely and the anxious long for except a love they cannot lose? but who can give a love that does not fade or die but you? What does weariness seek except rest? But what sure rest is there apart from you? Thus the soul commits adultery when it turns from you and seeks these things that it cannot find except in you. O Lord, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, the gospel will tell you that if you live at the center of your own life, there's only one way that goes. Not only are you gonna be crushed under your own pursuit of happiness, but when you're gone, you're gonna be completely forgotten. Or worse, if you look at our culture, you'll be remembered and you'll be hated. But God says, if you look at me, if you see me as the center of your own life, not only 
where you get to exchange all your depression for ultimate meaning, but you'll forever have the one. You'll be in a living relationship with the one that you were created for. And now all of a sudden you can receive this love that is from everlasting to everlasting, this beautiful, incredible, steadfast love when you see your life purpose for him, when you see your life as centered around him. Now some of you may say, hang on a minute, uh, you always tell me to read and judge you know, the sermon by the accuracy to the text. I saw some clarifiers you skipped over, Jared. It says this great steadfast love that you're going on and on about, this incredible love is only for those who fear him, who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. You conveniently breezed over that in your ramblings about presidents. Thank you for bringing that up. You're absolutely right. Now we're getting at the tension of the whole Bible because This incredible covenant steadfast love that we receive from the Lord is only for those who fear him perfectly, for those who keep his commandments perfectly and those who never ever break his covenant. And if you know anything about Israel or the history of mankind or your own heart, you'll know no one has ever perfectly obeyed his commandments. And so the whole world is cut off from this incredible steadfast love. In fact, not only cut off from the love but standing under his wrath. That's the state of the world. So what is God to do with such a situation? What's the most famous verse in the whole Bible? For God so loved the world, he sent his son. God loved the world in this way. He sends his son to come down and perfectly fear him, perfectly keep his covenant, and perfectly obey his commandments on our behalf. He becomes the spotless lamb that stands in your place. He becomes the ultimate sacrifice that stands in your place. And now, those who trust in Christ for their salvation are called in Christ, you're in Christ, which means he's your representative before a holy God. So when God looks at you, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failure, he sees Christ's success. It's as if you lived the perfect life that Christ lived when God looks at you. He doesn't see your failure anymore. He sees Christ's success. And so now, not only is this incredible covenant steadfast love shed abroad in our hearts, poured out over us, but because it's based on what Christ has done and not what you have done or what I have done, nothing can ever separate it from, or nothing can ever separate us from this love. Nothing can ever remove it because it's based on what Christ has done. This is something that seems to drive Paul just absolutely insane and at the end of Romans 8, he's like, hang on a minute. Who's gonna bring any charge against you if God is the one who justifies you? I don't understand. Who's gonna bring any condemnation against you if Jesus paid the penalty for your condemnation and so there's nothing left for you? And then just to prove his point, he lists off literally anything he can think of, tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness, danger, sword, present things, things that come, heights, depths, angels, rulers, and then to cover all his bases, he says, or anything else in all creation, none of that is ever able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because it's based on what Christ has done for you, this incredible, beautiful, steadfast, perfect love is eternally yours. It's eternally secured in Christ. How could that not stir worship in your heart? And so David has been on quite a journey throughout this entire psalm as he's meditating on this truth of God and he starts off low and then thinks about these things, God's salvation, his character, and his compassion. As we look at this last part of the sermon, we're actually gonna see it is kind of mission accomplished. His heart is stirred towards worship and what do we see as the result of that? David calls all of creation to join him in praising God. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his well. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, 
O my soul. He sees God on his heavenly throne and he calls all in heaven and on earth to worship him. He starts with the angels and then works his way down in a sense. So he gets the rest of creation, right? Bless the Lord. See, when you see something beautiful, something incredible, there's this natural impulse to want to share it. Let me prove it to you with one word, Instagram. How many of you dive for your phones to take a picture of your food? Right, a, a, a lightning storm, a sunset, a mountain range. You're just your kid's smiling. Oh my gosh, when my kid does anything, he's like breathing, and I have a video, and I'm like, Tim, look at this. Have you ever seen a kid more incredible? Right, you want to share it, right? Not just because you know you want people to know you've experienced it; you want them to experience it as well. And David here is experiencing that in its purest form. Right, he's seeing God's salvation, His character, and now he's demanding everyone else come and see. Come and worship him. He demands that they worship in the same way he demanded his own heart to worship. And we actually see him join in there in the last verse. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You see, incredible things can happen when you don't feel like praying. What a lie it is of the enemy to say you have to be led by your feelings. David doesn't buy it. Rather than listening to his own heart, he actually preaches to his own heart. He meditates on the things of God. And though he started off low, he ends by calling all of creation to come and praise God. What an incredible psalm. And just to warn you, this psalm isn't uh, just a quick way to spiritual ecstasy with God, right? As if you could just read it and then all of a sudden you'll be bursting with all the feelings in the world like David, right? That would be using God as a means to another end. You're just after the feelings there. You're not after God himself. But what the psalm is teaching you is that you need to have a living relationship with a living God so much so that when he feels a million miles away, you can still declare with all your might that his love for you is higher than the heavens are above the earth. And as incredible as this psalm is, the most beautiful thing about it is uh, the Christ that it points to. You know, David's looking forward to the Messiah that's to come. We know the Messiah who has come, Jesus Christ, who doesn't just say, uh, I'll forgive all your iniquity, but says, I'll take your iniquity on myself so that you can be washed clean. He doesn't just redeem you from the pit, he redeems you from the ultimate pit, hell itself, so that you can have eternal life. He doesn't just say, I'll satisfy you with good. He says, I am goodness himself, and I've come so that you can have eternal fellowship with me. You can experience the life-giving fellowship with me for all eternity. He doesn't just say to Moses, no one can see my face and live, but rather says, I've come down as God himself, and he who has seen me has seen the Father. He doesn't just identify with the lowly, he says, I'll become the lowly. I'll take on a flesh made of dust. I'll become the oppressed. I'll be hated, I'll be persecuted, and I'll be killed so that I can give my righteousness to those who don't deserve it. I will perfectly keep God's commandments so that nothing can ever separate you from his love. And because of him, we don't just call all of creation to worship him. We actually know there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tribe, tongue, and nation will declare that he is the king of kings. And we won't just see beauty as if we're looking at a beautiful mountain range. Rather, we'll share an eternal fellowship with beauty himself. That's the most incredible thing about this psalm, the Christ that it points to. And when we truly see all that Christ has bought for us in the gospel, we, like David, will be able to say, with all of our might, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Let's pray. Father, it's uh, incredible to just behold who you are, uh, your word, all the things that you've done for us. There's a sense in which uh, it's almost intimidating uh, to see so many incredible things because we're expecting to just 
be able to soak it up like a sponge, but we know that uh, our, our sinful hearts are inclined to look away. Our sinful hearts are inclined to uh, trust in our own selves for salvation and things like that. But I just pray that you would begin to give us uh, just a, a bit of a taste of what it looks like to share in fellowship with you, what we're gonna do for all eternity. We praise you for your son, for what he's done. We pray that your spirit would minister to our hearts, that as in the same way that we're prone to turn away from you, that we would actually be prone to turn towards you. When we see things that stress us out on the news or anything like that, we'd have a natural sense in which we just know the king of kings is in charge. You're sovereign over all of it, and we have an undying hope that can never be afforded that, like Zach says, best case scenario is eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So I pray that you administer that to our hearts in your son's holy name. Amen.